0: Now today we're gonna to hear from Ted Beasley. He's gonna be continuing our encounter series, talking to us about how to follow and respond to God's calling on your life. As you think about what that might be for you, check out this video. Find out what it is you want and go after it as if your life depends on it. Why? Because it does. But what do we say, but, but there always be tomorrow. Oh no. There are a lot of opportunities that were around yesterday. They're not here today. Make your move before you're ready. See, you want to really begin to stretch yourself. You want to become a risk taker. You want to raise the bar on yourself. Most people won't do that. See, most people engage in low life living, low risk living. This God said, if you're not willing to risk, you cannot grow. And if you cannot grow, you cannot become your best. And if you cannot become your best, you can't be happy. And if you can't be happy, then what else is there? Many of us don't do the things that we want to do and don't act because of lack of self-confidence. We don't believe enough in ourselves. See, we don't have the courage, and that's what it takes, courage. It takes guts to do that, which you know you need to do. If you don't have the courage to act, life many times will move on you and make you act. And what you will find, that when you decide to take life on, discover some things about yourself that will begin to electrify your personality. You'll begin to discover some things about you that you don't know you've got when you put yourself in that type of challenging situation. Oh it's it's something that you get up in the morning you look yourself in the mirror you're a different kind of person you walk with a different kind of spirit. If you want to make it happen? It's you. You've got to take personal responsibility to make it happen. If you want to do something, if you thought about something you want to do, take it head on. Decide that you're going to start looking at it, start doing research on it, start tackling it, start becoming involved in whatever and wherever it might lead you to begin to explore the possibilities in that particular thing that you're seeking, so that you can begin to learn all you can about it. Decide that you're gonna face it, that whatever shortcomings you have, that you're gonna strengthen yourself there. Whatever training is required, that you're gonna go get that training, that you're gonna get started right now. George Washington Carver would say, do what you can, where you are and what you have, and never be satisfied.
1: All right. It's a longing in all of us for more, to be more, to risk more, to no longer stand on the sidelines. And yet so many Christians never really go all in on their faith. That's why three weeks ago, Gateway, we put this challenge in front of you to take your spiritual walk to a new level with this encounter series. We had to ask ourselves, is there a better life for me? Is there a deeper experience of God? What would it be like if I did the, quote, one thing that's necessary, which is to stay connected to God throughout the day? How would my life change if I did a 60-day encounter experiment where I got the Soul Revolution app for my phone? That uh, goes off once an hour to remind me to check in with God, to talk to him about my heart's condition, and to listen to see if he has something for me to do. Just out of curiosity, as we get started, how many of you have at least tried the 60-60 experiment? All right, good. Don't feel bad if your hand's not up. I quit after the uh, first Wednesday. <laughs> Initially, uh, I quit. Um, the, uh, I was excited about doing it, you know, and I was kind of an overachiever at first, and so I set my alarm to go off every hour for 24 hours. So that first night was kind of tough for me. <laughs> I mean, just as I'm dozing off into REM sleep, Uh, ding, ding, uh, I wake up. And so the next morning, I look like a sleep-deprived, bleary-eyed, deranged serial killer. And I'm driving down the highway, gesturing to people, screaming at people at work. And I was wondering, is this the kind of abundant life that John Burke told us about? (laughs) So I dialed it back. Have you noticed that when this app chimes, uh, sometimes you you don't really want it to do that. You don't really want to connect with God in, in some of those moments. Ding, ding, time to read scripture. Ding, ding, time to tell Jesus how I'm doing. I'm reaching into the refrigerator late at night trying to sneak a chocolate decadence brownie. Ding, ding. Oh, you're right, Lord, you, you got me. Or, uh, or I'm driving up, up to an intersection and there's a homeless guy there with a sign and I'm judging him for not having a real job. Ding, ding, yes, Jesus, thanks thanks for that correction. Uh, or I'm walking back from the mailbox, flipping through my wife's Victoria's Secret catalog. ding, ding. Well played, Holy Spirit. <laughs> Does this 60-60 experiment feel sometimes like you've given God access to your Facebook feed and he's constantly commenting on what's going on? You know, you, you read scripture, you volunteer at the food pantry, ding, ding, God liked your post, three thumbs up from the Trinity. Or, or Jesus commented on the, the picture that you posted of you cutting someone off in the gateway parking lot after church. Ding, ding, emoticon, sad, crying face. I made Jesus cry again. You know, I know I'm supposed to, because I'm on the stage, be some sort of spiritual example for you. But when it came to the 60-60, at least initially, I failed. And what I realized those first few days is that my spiritual life is segmented off from the rest of my life. I'm hot on Sunday and I'm cold on Monday. He's close during my quiet time, but he's so far away as I go throughout the workday trying to prove myself to everyone. I wanna be his best friend when I reflect on his holiness and his goodness and his majesty, but I don't want anything to do with him when I'm tempted to lie or to lust or to talk behind someone's back. Parts of my heart belong to him, but not my whole heart. Parts of my day I invite him into, but not my whole day. Can any of you relate to this, or I'm alone? Okay, awkward, all right? the 60-60 causes a crisis of belief, and maybe it has for you. I want intimacy with God, but sometimes I struggle to follow through with it. Let's look at the progression of where we've been these weeks. All right, we started out in week one with this passage from John chapter 15, where Jesus says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you'll remain in me and I remain in you, you you'll bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And so step one that first week John was telling us about, was just to uh, connect with God, to stay connected, to accept his offering of relationship. And then step two the next week was listen for his voice. God speaks through his word, we found out. He speaks through other people in our lives and through a still small voice at times or, or even through dreams. But then step three this week, this is where the plot thickens and where, quite frankly, most Christians politely bow out of their encounter with God. It's when we obey, we decide if we're going to step up and do what he asks us to do. It's there in John chapter 14, four times, in just a few verses, it says that if we have authentic love for Jesus, we're gonna follow his commands. Verse 14, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. Verse 21, whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. Verse 23, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. Verse 24, anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. Obedience, four times in the same paragraph. What are you trying to say, Lord? Often when God speaks, he asks you to take a leap of obedience just so that your faith is real. Real faith calls for a response. God initiates with us. He speaks to us about what he'd have us do and frequently he asks us to do something challenging and our part is, in this whole equation is to show our obedience, that our faith and trust in him is is alive. This decision about whether or not to obey, Henry Blackaby, who was an author, he calls this moment the crisis of belief. Over 25 years ago, Blackaby wrote his own 60-60 experiment. It was called Experiencing God. And that first year, 1991, uh, I along with seven million other people did that 60-60 experiment. And this was revolutionary for me because up until that time, this idea of a relationship with God was pretty nebulous to me. How do you have a friendship with someone who is invisible? And the people in my church weren't very helpful on this because they talked about a relationship with God as if it was natural, if it was given, but they never explained the mechanics of of it to me, how it worked. And I was too embarrassed to ask. So I felt like an outsider. I hate feeling like an outsider when all the insiders know, you know, the secret handshakes and all the the terminology and language I don't. It feels terrible. It's kinda like if a normal person were to go visit the campus of Texas A&M University. Uh, This school has some really strange traditions and ways of doing things that other people don't understand and if you're watching right now on the uh, online campus, uh, and you're not from Texas, the best way I could describe Texas A&M is it's like this cross between a 4-H farming club and they join the Illuminati, okay? <laughs> so they, they have all, all these practices. They don't have cheerleaders at their games, they have yell leaders with megaphones who get up in front of the crowd and get everyone riled up. The yell leader starts by screaming, "Hump it, Ags," whatever that means, and then all the students bow forward and they begin to chant. I mean, nothing sounds seems more like a cult than a, a frenzied crowd of people bowing before a screaming guy wearing all white. And then uh, Aggies have these secret decoder rings that they wear everywhere, and it's kind of a, a sign to them that uh, uh, you know, when they meet friends around the world, that they're fellow Aggies. And what do Aggies do when they first get their rings? They drop it in a pitcher of warm beer and gulp it down in one sip. Of course. Aggies, we love you, but we don't understand you. (laughs) All right, back in 1998, when we started Gateway, we never wanted this to be this place where we made assumptions that you knew what we were talking about. We never wanted to use religious jargon. We never wanted you to feel like an outsider when people talk about a relationship with God. And so that's why we do series like this that's why uh, this experiencing God framework for me back when I was 18 years old was so foundational. I want to talk you through uh, that framework about how we respond to God. It happens in in four phases. First, an encounter with God requires faith. Second, encounters with God are God-sized. Third, what you do in response to God's invitation reveals what you believe about God. And then finally, fourth, true faith requires action. Let's talk through that this morning. First, an encounter with God requires faith. Hebrews chapter 11, verse six says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So we see from the outset that relationship with God is different than relationship with human beings. You know, our friendship with people, that's built on shared experiences and quality time and physical proximity and Human language. And certainly it's true that we can relate to God in some of those mediums. But the basis of a relationship with God is faith. And without faith, the writer of Hebrews says, it's impossible to know God, to feel Him. What is faith? Well, he starts out that section in verse 1. He says, now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is one of the hardest verses in the New Testament to translate because how unique and interesting these two words are, confidence and assurance. That word uh, confidence is probably best translated as guarantee. This isn't a definition of faith, it's a description about how it works. So it's a guarantee. Faith makes us certain that God is going to follow through on his promises, It's as if they're already real. Two castaways stand on a deserted island, and one of them looks out onto the horizon, and all that he sees is empty ocean. The second guy looks out onto the horizon, and he sees a large ship coming to their rescue. The second guy has binoculars. Faith acts as the binoculars. That phrase, assurance of what we do not see, is a way of amplifying this concept. Faith is a way you choose to see the world that God's real, that his promises are guaranteed. And though I don't understand fully how they're going to come to to fruition, I believe that they will. This past week, uh, I talked to two people who had been laid off from their jobs, just real recently, and I I know that these two people are brilliant, they're gonna land on their feet, they're gonna be fine. The first person, person A, said that he was really worried that he was gonna have to rebrand himself, that recruiters were going to look at his resume and they were going to only see what he's done in the last eight years person b i sat across from at, at starbucks and she said to me you know i'll be honest when my supervisor called me into his office and told me that this company's outgrown me that hurt but I can't help but think that God's at work here to move me to something that I'm really passionate about, and so I'm gonna take the next month and look for ways in which God's opening doors for me. Person B had the binoculars. She had the assurance that God has this handled. Well, you have to decide which person you wanna be. Paul says in 2 Corinthians five, we walk by faith and not by sight. So this first part of the framework, the first truth of the mechanics of how a relationship with God works is that the encounter requires faith. Secondly, encounters with God are God-sized. To give you a chance to live out your faith, to build trust with him, God puts opportunities in front of you and many times these opportunities are just a little bit bigger than you would feel comfortable in handling on your own. In Hebrews 11, after he describes how faith works, He spends the rest of the chapter telling stories from Old Testament characters and how God put God-sized tests in front of them. One of them is Moses. We're going to spend just a little bit of time here with Moses' story found in Exodus 3. Starting in verse 1, it says, Now Moses was tending the flock, and he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And there the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush And Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it didn't burn up. And so Moses thought, I'll go over and see this strange sight, why this bush does not burn up. And when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. Okay, the year is approximately 1250 BC. And according to uh, recorded history in scripture, it's been about 500 years since God had spoken to anyone. And during that time, his people, the Israelites, have been subjected to slavery in Egypt. And so uh, God is deciding now that he's going to engage, that he's going to speak directly to Moses through the burning bush. And we usually skim over a passage like that. We go, oh, yeah, that's normal. You know, God, God speaks, God's about to show Moses what he wants him to do. But you have to consider the religious climate at the time. For the first few millennia of human civilization, God's did not speak to humans. God's were too far off. It would be shocking to run into one of them. It would be sort of like if we were to run into a celebrity, you know? Have you ever been around a powerful person or a famous person, and, and you just feel like you're in the presence of someone who's higher than you? Uh, I, uh, I uh, some years ago, was in an Applebee's in a small town called Rolla, Missouri, and I look over at the booth next to me, and who's chomping on a burger there but Gary Sinise? I love Gary Sinise, <laughs> star of stage and film. Gary Sinise, who was nominated for an Academy Award for his performance in 1994 in Forrest Gump. Gary Sinise, who won a Golden Globe for portraying Truman. Gary Sinise, who was the star of CSI New York. I have a man crush <laughs> on Gary Sinise. But I didn't want to bug... I mean, he wanted his privacy, I'm sure. I wasn't going to walk up to him in the middle of his meal and ask him to sign a napkin or anything. So I just figured I would stare at him longingly <laughs> while he finished his meal. Well, my, my son, who was then three years old at the time, announced that he needed to go number two. And so I took him into the bathroom and put him there in the stall, and I was waiting there. And who should happen to walk into the bathroom? <laughs> Lieutenant Dan. Lieutenant Dan. And I, I was so nervous, and Mr. Sinise went into the stall next to my son, and I thought, how cool is this? My son is pooping next to Gary Sinise. This is the greatest day of my life. And uh, Mr. Sinise flushed the toilet and came out. I tried to shake his hand. He's like, maybe we should wash first. <laughs> All right. It was, I, I get kind of awkward um, around, around celebrities. This is the way religious systems of the ancient world thought about interacting with gods. People didn't run into gods. Gods in the ancient Sumerian Sumerian, uh, and Egyptian civilizations and then later in the Greek and the Roman civilizations, they had these gods who were aloof and unpredictable and capricious and sometimes just impersonal forces. But religion in the Bible is different. You have people like Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Jacob and now Moses where God wants a relationship with them. And they respond to him in faith once he reveals himself. And he frequently gives them a God-sized task or challenge to take on. Something that isn't completely comfortable. And we see the God-sized task here in verse nine. God says to Moses, And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I've seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I'm sending you, Moses, to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. God says to Moses, Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh, the most powerful and egotistical uh, despot in the world, and I want you to tell him to release his primary slave labor force, to go out and worship a God that that he doesn't believe in, and then I want you to go to the lily-livered stiff-necked Israelites and convince them to walk away from their Egyptian captors out into the desert where they have no food or water. Get it done, Moses. And you know what Moses says in response there at Exodus? He says, here am I, Lord. Send Aaron. You know, send my big brother. This is an example that's extreme, right, of a God-sized encounter. But God calls ordinary people like you and me in the same way to join in his work. In John chapter five, verse 17, Jesus says, my father is always at his work, even to this day, and I too am working. And Jesus says later on, I don't do anything that I don't see the father doing. See, God is always doing something around you, and he invites you as part of this faith relationship to join him in his work. And because faith it involves faith, it's not always easy for you to do. For Moses, it's a burning bush. But for us, it's uh, often very different, the kind of tasks that he puts in front of us. Maybe it's a need. I mean, you notice that some of your neighbors are experiencing some hard times, and you have this thought, you know, maybe I should get a Walmart gift card and anonymously put it in an envelope and just lay it there on their porch. Or maybe it's in response to what you read in scripture. You know, Philippians four, I shouldn't be anxious, I should bring my request to God. And you think, Lord, maybe you're asking me to have more faith and just pray about this instead of obsessing and worrying. Or uh, maybe it's, you get a prompting. You know, I can't stop thinking about my sister-in-law, but God, I haven't talked to her since Christmas. Are you telling me I should reach out to her? All these encounters are God-sized, not that they involve some enormous sacrifice, but because they interrupt your regularly scheduled programming and ask you to step out of your comfort zone. You know him by joining his work. So when you walked in today, uh, you received the Next Steps handout, or maybe you didn't get that. You can go online and get it. Every time we get together on Sundays, we have these practical applications to do afterwards. And there, uh, we list out five God-sized encounters that God's going to give you this week for you to just pay attention to. So look that up, it's trusting his word, resisting a sin, following a relational prompting, giving sacrificially, doing the opposite of what you would normally do. These are ways that you have God-sized encounters. Look for it. This third movement in this framework of how we respond to God is what you do in response to God's invitation reveals what you actually believe about God. Now, Moses is eventually going to get it right, but his first shot at obedience doesn't go so well. Verse 11 But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? You can hear his excuse, right? It's, Surely you're not talking to me. And then in verse 13, Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask, What's his name? then what shall I tell them? That's another excuse. God, if I do this, I'm gonna look like an idiot. Then there's chapter four, verse one. Moses answered, what if they do not believe me or listen to me and say, the Lord did not appear to you? That's another one of our excuses, which is, what if I do what you say and I fail? Or verse 10 of chapter four. Moses said to the Lord, pardon your servant, Lord, I've never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you've spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. God, what if you ask me for more than I can do? And then verse 13, but Moses said, pardon your servant, Lord, please send someone else. <laughs> wah, wah, wah. None, not one of this, uh, these statements is, is a good moment for Moses. There's often a crisis of belief. There's a hard decision when God asks you to do something about whether you're, not, whether you're gonna step into it. You know, Jesus offered an invitation to his three best friends in the world, you know, James and Peter and John, best friends. He said, just hang out with me. Just spend an hour with me. That's what I need. And you know this story from Matthew 26, the Garden of Gethsemane. Those guys fall asleep, on Jesus. He turns around and you know his bros are snoozing. And Jesus is hurt by this, but doesn't surprise him. And so he wakes them up and he says, "Watch and pray that you don't fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak." The spirit is willing. We want to stay in communion with the Lord. We want to go to greater depths in our relationship with him. We want to soar to great heights. But the flesh is weak. Commitment erodes and resolve dissipates and follow through freezes up. This 60-60 should be simple, right? Just have a little alarm that goes off once an hour during your waking hours. Focus on God for a couple of minutes. All of us wanna stay connected to God. But it's pretty hard in those moments to really focus on him. It's hard to consistently pause. The spirit's willing but the flesh is weak. Jesus' friends had Jesus there in bodily form, and yet they still fell asleep on him. When we're trying to have a relationship with God, there's something that gets in the way. A lot of times we don't talk about this in the church, but Jesus points it out there, and Paul says it in Galatians. There is something called the flesh. That's this residual part of our pre-Christian lives that still hangs on in our lives, It's that thing inside of us that shakes its fist at God and says, we're not going to do it your way, we're going to do it our way. It's the flesh. Galatians 6.17, Paul says, the flesh desires what's contrary to the spirit and the spirit what's contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict. They're literally at war with each other. This is what's happening in our hearts. We want to do the 60-60. We want to hear and respond. We want to pray when the ding-ding goes off and we see some way that God's at work and we want to join him, but then there's opposition. There's hesitance. There's resent, uh, resistance inside of us. Do you ever feel the flesh? This isn't you being lazy spiritually. This is not because you're some kind of subpar Christian. It's that we all struggle with our flesh. Faith means I acknowledge my flesh, but then I push through. I fight through the excuses. So let's take a few moments to fight through Moses's excuses, because they're the same things the flesh puts up against us when we want to follow God. The first excuse: Surely you're not talking to me, Lord. Sometimes you get a sense. Of something God wants you to do, uh, apologize to your kid for the harsh word you said to her yesterday, or maybe it's to say some encouragement to somebody at work, or maybe it's to sign up to greet here at Gateway on Sunday mornings. And often the very first roadblock that that the flesh puts up is, is this feeling from God or is it from me? Is the spirit of the Lord actually asking me to do this, or is this just the burrito I ate at Chewy's for lunch speaking to me? (laughs) Scripture says, err on the side of believing it's from God. 1 Thessalonians 5, don't quench the spirit. Do not treat prophecies with, with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what's good. Reject every kind of evil. God speaks, so don't quench. Don't snuff out the voice of the spirit in your life. Assume that he's talking to you. But you notice Paul also says, be smart about it. You know, test it. Ask some questions like, is this thing that I'm thinking I should do, is it consistent with scripture? Would it be loving for me to do it? Would it take some faith for me to follow through on this? And if the answer to those questions are yes, then do it. Another objection of resistance we get is, if I do this, I'll look like an idiot. Sometimes the Lord asks us to do things that on face value look ridiculous. I can remember some years ago, there was a guy who had just moved to Austin from Chicago and I was working with him on a project, just getting to know him. And he calls me and says, Ted, I'm gonna be gone for the next week or so. My dad passed away back in Chicago. He was my best friend and uh, I need to go make arrangements. And you could just hear the heartache in his voice. And I asked him for the name of the funeral home so I could be sure to send flowers. And when I got off the phone with him, the Lord gave me this impression. The Lord said to me, get on a plane and go to Chicago. I was like, what are you talking about, Jesus? <laughs> really? <laughs> Chicago's a long way away. And I barely know this guy. He'll think I'm weird. He'll think I have some kind of like fatal attraction. It's a well-known fact that I'm infatuated with Gary Sinise. <laughs> but the Lord was like, are you going to trust me on this or not? And I'll never forget the look on this guy's face when I showed up at that small funeral service. And he opened up and he shared his grief with me. And he said, Ted, this is exactly what I needed. I was beginning to question whether or not God really wanted me in Austin, if maybe things had been different if I had been home in Chicago when this happened. So, this is one of the most caring things someone's ever done for me. And when we got back, when he got back from Chicago, we struck up a fast friendship. And I used to meet with him every week and encourage him about his faith and help him in his calling. And today, he's a best selling author and he speaks. Uh, every year to tens of thousands of people all over the world. Now, I didn't have anything to do with that. But there was there was a moment, a critical moment in his faith walk where God wanted to use me, but my flesh said, you'll look like an idiot. A third piece of resistance. What if I do what you say, Lord, and I fail? God says to Moses, you do the willingness, I'll do the wonders. If God asks you to be obedient. And the outcomes are his department. And sometimes you never even get confirmation this side of heaven that what you did was the right thing, or you never see fruit from it. But in the process of trusting God for the results, you draw closer to him. And then the last piece of resistance the flesh often brings up is what if God asks me for more? I mean, what if I start listening and responding to him and he changes everything? What if he wants me to give up my career or walk away from my comfortable suburban lifestyle or break up with my girlfriend? What if he wants me to move to Afghanistan and live in a tin house and be a missionary? What if God just keeps sucking more and more out of me? The answer is he won't do that. God created these desires in you and he's not gonna rob you of who you are. But will he keep raising the stakes in your faith journey? Definitely. There's a great promise that goes along with that, though, is that his challenges to you are always in proportion to your faith. Romans chapter 12, verse three. Paul says, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than you ought to think, but to think so as with sound judgment. But give this last part. As God has allotted to each a measure of faith. See, every time God gives you a mission, it's proportional to the faith that you have. This is the dance of faith that we do with God. He speaks to us. We follow through. We show willingness. He increases our faith and he works miracles. Do you want to live a monochrome, boring version of Christianity where you never hear God's voice and you never respond to it and you're in this pathetic, safe bubble? Missionary Jim Elliott once reflected on how much God might ask of him and he wrote this in his journal in 1949, uh, a little bit of time before he was martyred for his faith. He said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Once you own that, once you're willing to push through the resistance to your faith, spiritual life starts bubbling up in you. And you start hearing God at a level you never thought possible. And you start getting pulled to it, into adventures that are beyond imagining. What you do in response to his voice speaks volumes about what you believe about God. And then finally, the last part of the framework is sort of the summation. It's true faith requires action. Moses does his faith dance with God throughout the book of Exodus. You know what's really interesting to me about this burning bush story is that God has empathy for Moses and for us. He shows, he understands how hard it is to communicate with an invisible God. We feel him, but we can't touch him. We know he's near, but often he's just around the next bend in the road. He's close enough to believe, but he's illusory enough that our flesh cries out and tells us we're crazy. So God makes Moses a promise. Exodus 13. uh, Exodus 3.14, he says, I am who I am. This is what you're to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. That name I am is clearly a verb. It's not a noun. It's God's self-description of himself. It's an archaic form of the verb to be. It literally means I will be there. I will be there with you. God is giving himself a new name, a descriptor of his core character, which is presence. And this is a name that's better than any other God's name. I will be will- there with you. It's my promise. He will be w- there when Moses goes into the courts of Pharaoh. He'll be there with the Israelites when they step out into the wilderness. He'll be there when I quit the 60-60 after a few days and try to get back on track. And he'll be there with you even at your point of doubt. Maybe you haven't felt close to God in a long time. And maybe this 60-60 is a chance for you to connect in the small everyday moments of life when he speaks and you respond it's faith it's simple willingness to respond try it out this week